Welcome to this podcast series on pseudoscience, fake news, and how to fight back, supported by a grant from the Open Society Foundation and in partnership with the challenging pseudoscience group at the Royal Institution of Great Britain. My name is Marius Turda. Together with my colleague, Dr. Robert Pyra, we're inviting you to join a conversation about the meaning of history and the role of science in today's society. Our subject in this series is how history and science have become weaponized to support political agendas in East Central Europe, particularly during the last few years. This is intended as a lively and urgent contribution to the understanding of pseudoscience and of the uses and abuses of history in the era of the so-called fake news. My guest today is Mihai Siladigal, professor at Edwish Lorand University in Budapest, a philosopher and an expert in media ethics with a special interest in the freedom of expression. Mihai will talk about fake news, the state, and the media in Hungary. Mihai, welcome. Hello, hello. The role played by social media in spreading trustworthy and untrustworthy news is an important topic, Mihai. Nothing is true and everything is possible seems to be the guiding motto. Now, when looking at what constitutes fake news and how it gets shared on social media, there are two types of false information, misinformation and disinformation. My first question to you, Mihai, is what differentiates between misinformation and disinformation? Well, uh, misinformation is, is simply false information. It doesn't contain any intentional element, uh, contrary to disinformation, which uh, is intended at some point. And the fact that it is intentional implies further elements as well, like the existence of a narrative. I mean, if I disinform somebody, then I do have a narrative along which the distorted information would be disseminated to, to that audience. But this is not the case with misinformation. Misinformation can contribute to disinformation as a tool. The one who sets up disinformation can rely on already existing or supposed elements of misinformation and can make his narrative in this way more credible. So there is an interplay between the two, obviously, but there is also a very important difference uh, on the level of intentionality. That's a very important point, and I'm happy you highlighted intentionality, because during this pandemic, uh, this is one of the very hot topics, uh, whether behind some of the news, behind some of the information that circulates in the media, there is a certain intention, whether... There is a government behind it, or maybe a, an agency. We hear many conspiratorial stories about the vaccines, the anti-vaccines. We hear about various organizations being involved, and indeed various people being involved in putting forward certain agendas. So intentionality seems to be a very crucial word and a very important concept, I suppose, in the discussion about fake news and the discussion about misinformation and disinformation. So in connection to this, I should like to ask you, why do you think 
fake news are so widespread and popular on the internet today? What makes them so appealing to the general public and to the population at large? Well, there are a number of considerations which deserve attention in, in this respect. One is that, contrary to earlier decades, the possibility of, of sharing information on the level of individual information consumption has increased dramatically. So um, I can pass information to my own audience on Facebook, for instance, and it can be multiplied further on, which can generate an impact close to the impact of uh, regular press outlets. So this is an absolutely new uh, situation. The press finds itself in a very strange situation of competition with multiplied, shared, wrong, false, unedited information disseminated by uh, ordinary people who are not trained to process and, and edit information. And here I already mentioned the second aspect, the, the problem of editing. <clears throat> uh, normally, we are used to edited information in the professional media, which means that there are a number of protocols of how you actually uh, check the validity of, of information, how many times you do this, uh, on which channel, to which extent you would make the audience know that you are also on certain about certain elements of the news material. So there are, there are all kinds of procedure which make you as an editor, uh, as a journalist or as a publisher, a professional communicator. Now, this is absent in the Web2 uh, platforms, which on the other hand are fantastic examples of, of the freedom of information unparalleled in earlier history. So I can just applaud this fantastic development that there was nothing similar to this earlier, that so many people can talk to so many people. This is, this is a utopia. This is fantastic. But as, uh, like I said, the shadow of the situation is that there is an incredible amount of unedited information running around the earth. And this brings us to a third aspect, the hierarchy problem. So in, back in the 90s or even the early 2000s, the different information platforms were very distinguishable. So you could clearly make the difference between well-known print press outlet or a well-known TV channel and some absolutely secondary channels of information, which were obviously not in the technical and editorial position to compete with the professional channels. This has changed, which again has a, a positive development as well. The lack of hierarchy makes many people possible to, to speak out and make their voice heard. But on the other hand, this creates an environment of information ambivalence in which it is much more difficult to distinguish between the reliability of the platform. So and the fourth aspect that I, I would mention is something that I call the lack of critical time. So, I mean, when especially in case of the print press, but even in case of electronic media, there is a time element, both on the side of the editor and on the side of the audience, like I said before, uh, there is a protocol that precedes uh, the broadcast or the, any other form of, of publication, 
so you take time until you actually produce a material ready to, to be sent out. On the audience side, there is a similar process. I mean, you can stop reading the newspaper, you can think, you can return to it, you can watch the second edition of the news or whatever. Right? So you, there is a time element. You can uh, actually prepare to uh, absorb the information. Now, the online platforms are not really good for that, as we know. So the, the sharing, again, just to, to return to this aspect, is again something that increases the rapidity of the passing on of the information without critical thinking. There was an interesting uh, paper recently in one of the media research reviews of Hungary, relying on an empirical international and, and national empirical survey that shows that a significant number of Facebook users are sharing links without reading them, which is uh, quite scary. So, so I think that these four aspects are absolutely crucial. The lack of editing, the problem of critical time, the sharing, and uh, the problem of hierarchy of distinguishing between platforms. So these, these are definitely elements which contribute to the increase of, of the fake news element in our life. Using this explanation as an introduction to my next question, I want to point out something that clearly is formatted or is being orchestrated, or indeed uh, has gained a lot of uh, support because of the current situation, because of the pandemic that we've experienced since uh, March 2020. And if we look at East Central Europe and how misinformation and fake news circulate in East Central Europe more broadly, in Hungary more specifically, we can see that this discussion about fake news and about disinformation and misinformation is connected directly to some other narratives and projects put forward by the Orban regime for the past 10 years. And I want to highlight a couple, which I hope to unpack with you in the next minutes, Mihai. One is the discussion, for example, about immigration. From the very beginning, I remember when I was reading about how the media portrayed the outbreak of the pandemic in Hungary. You remember in March 2020, they connected it to the Iranian students who allegedly brought the pandemic into Hungary. And those Iranian students, and some of them were there for a long time studying in Hungary, were deported. It turned out, obviously, not to be at all correct. You know, the virus was not brought into Hungary from Iran. So that's one example. From the very beginning, you have this discussion, which is very pronounced in the Hungarian context about immigration and about what it means with, in the broader context since 2015 with the refugee crisis. So that's one aspect. And then, as you know, on March 30th, 2020, the so-called Anti-Coronavirus Act was introduced and gave Prime Minister Viktor Orban enhanced powers during the pandemic. So his uh, style of uh, government and his personal idea of politics were in a way reconfigured during the pandemic. So and with that came, as you pointed out, probably a more pronounced state control of the media. So that's one aspect I wanted to reflect on. And the second one is, of course, that the law introduced last year also stipulated penalties for people who spread fake news, right? So uh, we have reports of people being persecuted or uh, being scrutinized 
rather, by the police for allegedly spreading fake news. So the pandemic created a new context, if you wish, of how the discussion about misinformation, disinformation and fake news is happening in in East Central Europe, it's happening across the world, and certainly it's happening in Hungary. And you've spent a great deal of time analysing the media in Hungary. So your insights are very important to to us and to our listeners. So if you could uh, say a few words about how state-controlled media has been changed or reconfigured or transformed during the pandemic would be very important. Well, let me try to answer in a reversed order. Well, there are many changes in Hungary uh, since 2010 uh, with regard to information policy. Some of them are hard changes, others are soft changes. And among the soft changes, I would like to to mention the the problem of self-censorship which obviously appears in an environment of increased fear, which can immediately be related to a hard element. Because last year there was an order issued by the Ministry of Human Resources to all hospitals that they were not allowed to give interviews to the press. So no doctor is allowed to talk to the professional media with a name and with uh, his face. No video reports could take place at COVID stations. I'm not talking about intensive station where the BBC was not allowed in in the United Kingdom either. But for instance, in the United Kingdom, there was an alternative solution. Doctors had a chance to film themselves certain elements that they found important as information for the public. And that was edited by the BBC and, and later broadcast. Well, that was nothing similar in Hungary. So all what happens is that Physicians can use the internet, a tool which is free by definition, with its uh, gaps itself, as we know. There is no wonder why 2012 was an important year in Hungary when the government tried to introduce a law according to which every single download would have been charged and every single internet page was supposed to be registered. And that, I mean, that really made many people take to the streets. It was one of the few measures taken by the Orban government, which was indeed rejected by the public. So you might remember that the scene that has been seen everywhere with the uh, the mobile phone lights, people standing on the Sobocat Bridge in Budapest and lifting up their, the light of their mobile phones, showing that, no, this is not something that we give out, you know. So this is... So, but, Everything that can be influenced by the state is obviously outside of the freedom of of the internet, uh, which on the other hand, as uh, like we just discussed it in the previous minutes, is um, influenced by the information ambivalence and the fake news aspects uh, and so on and so forth. Well, migration was indeed a a huge uh, moment in 2015, there was this billboard campaign of the government with texts like, if you come to Hungary, you have to respect our culture. And uh, if you come to Hungary, you cannot take away uh, other people's job. Funny enough, these I mean, these, these are just two from the, the text of the billboards everywhere in the whole country. The interesting thing is that obviously they were written in Hungarian. So that was addressed to the 
domestic audience, it was supposed to communicate a stance of the government toward the migrants. So it was obviously not addressed to the refugees themselves, who don't understand in Hungarian. Another episode that, that deserves attention from the thousands of episodes which could be cited was when in 2015, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel visited Hungary officially. And every time she spoke Flüchtling, which means refugee, she was officially translated migrant. A solution which later turned out to be a general directive at the state media that you are not talking about refugees, you only talk about migrants. There was a leaked material last year at Free Europe Radio, recorded by, unofficially, of course, by um, one of the journalists of M1, a national public television channel, from a board meeting from earlier 2019, when we were preparing for uh, the European parliamentary elections. And one of the editors-in-chief of the channel was speaking about the policies and said that there is no secret in this circle that we are doing our job here, the public television, in favour of the governing parties. And if any one of you don't like this, they are free to leave. And this was secretly recorded and, and leaked at Free Europe. There are a number of other uh, such directives. I mean, refugees, just one. There was a case a few years ago in Paris that an African immigrant waiting for his citizenship rescued the life of a child falling out of a balcony. And he, he got the citizenship within a week for his heroic act. And that was everywhere. And it, it also appeared, obviously, in the, in the more or less free internet outlets of Hungary, there is no mention about it in the state media because you are not allowed to portray migrants in any positive context. So there are many, many such such elements. And, uh, well, just ask me something that I would like to add, a major uh, policy element as well. Indeed. I just want to highlight one element here uh, for the sake of broadening up the conversation and for uh, allowing our listeners to to grasp a bit better the complexity of the situation in Hungary. As you pointed out, language is very important because it is difficult to follow a conversation in Hungarian if you don't speak the language. And your example about those billboards with an anti-refugee message uh, is very uh, poignant because obviously all the nuances were only able uh, to be captured by native speakers and not by foreigners. So immigration seems to be such an important issue for Orban and for the media, for the state-controlled media in Hungary, and that includes television and the radio. And it's interesting to see how he recurrently appears in the public sphere. Only last week, on June the 11th, on Koshud Radio, Prime Minister Viktor Orban came up and again emphasised the point he made repeatedly during this pandemic, that we need to toughen up. We are living, he said, in an age of epidemics and migration. So he immediately connected the two. And he played again the used argument about migrant armies arriving at the gates of Europe and Hungary is there to protect European civilization. So immediately we can see how information is being used to uh, create a sense of danger, 
a sense of we need to protect ourselves, not only from the virus, but also from people who come into our country. And only um, again this week, he was talking about migration being by definition wrong because God did not create human beings so they can move across the world. They created human beings in a particular place, he would say, for a reason. I'm paraphrasing from a recent intervention he he gave. (coughs) So you have this anti-migration rhetoric and campaign, anti-Brussels campaign, anti-George Soros, which were very popular in in the media before the pandemic. But then during the pandemic, uh, some of these elements are reappearing. And that's, I think, very interesting, as you pointed out. And that connects, of course, to the more profound issue about how the media is basically controlled by the state in Hungary. You have independent media and you have independent outlets, but the population, as you say, broadly defined, would rather listen to Korshud Radio or watch state television than read alternative information being offered on the internet or being offered by journalists elsewhere. So that connects to the next point, which I want to discuss with you. Do you see certain dichotomies emerging during the pandemic that play very well into the hands of the government and very well into the hands of uh, Viktor Orban? For example, uh, if we think of how the opposition is being characterized during the pandemic by the government, whether the opposition supports or doesn't support a government's idea is immediately labelled in a certain way. And that is clearly connected to arguments about vaccination, anti-vaccination, the Russian vaccine, Sputnik, which Hungary promotes, which of course connects to bigger uh, idea about, you know, the West has basically lived its days and the hope comes from the East. It's part of the Viktor Orban's argument indeed about what can we promote differently in Hungary than in other European countries or in the region. So there are so many elements here which are interesting to us outside Hungary and will benefit from your opinion, Mihai. So if we can, for the remaining of our conversation, highlight some of these um, dichotomies, some of these key elements, and perhaps point out some examples of how misinformation, fake news, the control of the media is enhanced during the pandemic? Well, well, here is an interesting example right now that um, there was indeed a controversy in Hungary because the government had accepted a large amount of Sputnik and Sinopharm vaccines, which were known as controversial uh, at the WHO as well as in the European Union. So there was some fear that Hungarians vaccinated by either the Russian or the Chinese vaccine might get into trouble when traveling, which is actually happening right now. And obviously the opposition was highlighting the dangers of offering so much priority to products which, which are controversial abroad. And immediate reaction in the public media was that the opposition is against vaccination, which is absolutely not the case. No opposition leader said anything against the vaccination itself. But that was how the narrative immediately translated it into into another message. So so this is 
In, in, I mean, case of the COVID, we can really use this as a, as a very recent example. Now, obviously, the position of the state media itself is quite problematic these days all over because of the internet. But we have to bear in mind that there is a very important generational and occupational and territorial division among the different audiences when it comes to who watches the television or uh, listens to the radio and who uses the internet. The more you move to smaller settlements in Hungary and the more you move toward people with lower occupational training and the older they are, the less they would rely and the less they would search the internet for right information. And they are relying on M1, for instance, or TV2 or Koshut Radio, as you said, And uh, that, in a way, undermines uh, partly the traditional liberal approach in media theory that once people have the chance to choose among different channels, then there is no problem with the information uh, quality of the society, which is not the case, partly because of the self-censorship, which is generated by fear, and partly because of this particular division of the audience. So the state traditionally has the role to try to, to enable the citizen to know more. Doesn't matter in, in what way you would do that, okay? So, for instance, in case of the migration, contrary to what I had a chance to witness in German TV, uh, public service TV channels like CDF and ARD, Hungarian public television never invited migrants to talk their own stories, right? So the migrants were only vague bunch of people there coming to us, endangering our culture, endangering our safety. I have to mention in parentheses that, that Hungary has a very, very low percentage of migrants coming to the country. Even those who came in 2015, the large majority of them were planning to go uh, westwards from the outset. I mean, Hungary is, a, is, is quite isolated because of its language And it's not very affluent country either. So obviously, if you come from Afghanistan or from Syria, you target uh, countries like Germany or Austria or Sweden or with the United Kingdom at that time. So there was a constant problem with the migrants as a possible argument. As you also mentioned recently, the, uh, the narrative of we have to defend uh, the West, we have to defend the Christian traditions of the continent. We are the bastion, again, like always in history, We don't allow the migrants to Europe, contrary to the European Union, which is not doing its job well enough and it's disorganized in this sense. So This yeah. connects well to one of the, the topics we discuss in this podcast series, which is the uses and abuses of history. And here is a clear example how this narrative about Hungarian history is being played out in connection to refugees and in connection to what it means to be Hungarian, how you define that. And I should like to say that it seems to me, at least, that the government is quite successful at uh, disseminating and spreading uh, misinformation about external factors contributing to awakening of Hungarian national character that worked very well with the refugees and, and, and migrants and the entire campaign of smearing George Soros. And as you said, what the immigrants cannot understand and cannot assimilate and will only cause problems. But it also works very well in terms of how certain policies are being implemented and activities are being interpreted 
as being against Hungarian families or Hungarian character. And the most recent example we have, Mihai, I'm sure you know, is what happened a few days ago on June 15th when Hungary's parliament passed the legislation that bans, that forbids the dissemination of literature about uh, homosexuality or gender change in schools and to people under the age of 18. So there is an entire right-wing rhetoric about the incompatibility, incompatibility between Hungarian family and same-sex marriage or homosexuality. And, you know, well, I've seen examples uh, of people being very successful in promoting this in the media, both on television and in radio. And, of course, the, the example of uh, the our homeland uh, movement or party leader, uh, Duro Dora, shredding books for children because allegedly they put forward uh, messages which contravene the ideal representation of the Hungarian nation, of the Hungarian family. So we have this discussion about history, what it means. We have this discussion about narratives and how you define them. But you also have the discussion about pseudoscience and how misinformation and disinformation contribute to that. Interestingly, Orban, comparing to other political leaders, did not go anti-science in many of his public interventions. So he never said that the pandemic is a hoax or the virus doesn't exist. So although he's very good at using information for his own particular agenda, however, we can see that the anti-vaccination message in Hungary is not based on the fact that this is a hoax. So there is no pseudoscientific uh, debate necessarily happening amongst people who are advising him or people who are providing official information and interpretation of the COVID pandemic. So that's an interesting point that I want to highlight. I want to end now, Mihai, if I may, with a question about how can we fight back, if you wish? How can we substantiate a resistance to fake news and to misinformation and disinformation? And perhaps you could say uh, and offer a response, not only from the point of view of um, your uh, expertise in media and media in Hungary, but also from your expertise as a philosopher. If you think there are some tools that we can, as civil society, as individuals, put together to fight back pseudoscience, to fight back fake news. Well, it's a very difficult question indeed, and uh, it's definitely not a question about Hungary. Before answering to this, I would like to return to policy element that would connect this last question to the rest of our discussion, that in 2020, there was a, a huge event in the media landscape of Hungary. The so-called Keshma was constituted, a Central European Press and Media Foundation, which boosted 22 corporations um, embracing almost 500 titles of, of different uh, uh, outlets. And all these uh, outlets were, in fact, requested by Oban Victor to offer their assets as a contribution to become part of this huge foundation, which obviously channels media into an enormous entity of corporation, basically. And interestingly, all these outlets, I mean, the most of them, have decided to join 
which, I mean, according to certain professional opinions, uh, this uh, runs counter to the classical understanding of the market interest as the most rational motivation to take measures. In this particular situation, what we witness is that that outlets find it more uh, safe to have good connections with the government and to respond voluntarily to a personal request of Orban himself than to stay on the market, so to speak, and to compete with the others. Now, why I wanted to tell all this, not only because it is an interesting story itself, but also because of the press release of the foundation at which it was communicated that it, it is supposed to represent the Hungarian language identity and the Hungarian interest against uh, foreign interest and against the left liberal monopoly. So that was the, the scope as described and uh, given that it was announced that it is a, an entity of, of public interest and of national strategic importance, uh, the competition authority could not audit the transactions financial structure. That was also an important element, just to give you an idea about the level of state interference mm. uh, in the media. Mm. So, because that's usually the reply on the government side that, all right, come to Hungary and you will see all kinds of publications, uh, which is true, which is true, that the level of interference, which also contributes to the fear that I was already mentioning to you, that contributes to the reflex of self-censorship and the unprecedented level of concentration institutionally and financially, obviously, are even more worrying than simple classical censorship. Don't publish this particular article, or don't do that, which, which also happens, by the way. I mean, uh, especially in small settlements, uh, mayors uh, write newspapers, basically. So there's a, there's a widespread knowledge of this, that there's nothing like independent press uh, mm. in, in small settlements. So it's, this is... Uh... Absolutely. This is a sobering thought, and uh, although it's customary to end with a positive note, I would rather keep your final reflection about the independent media and the difficulties it experiences in Hungary to finish our conversation, Mihai, and also to suggest that this perhaps will give us a chance to return to some of these topics and conversations in the future. With that in mind, I should like to say thank you Thank you very much indeed for finding oh, the time you. and for thank answering you. my questions. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.